Hello and welcome to another episode of Cast It Into the Fire podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Sherry. And we're going to be starting off um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring, with the prologue. Now, I will say, I have in a far previous episode gone over this with um, Sam speaking on it. And it if you want it from any different perspective, I still recommend you go back and listen to it because I'm not taking it down or anything. And and there's a lot in the prologue and what was covered the first time may not be covered this time. It may be covered with a differing opinion. Yeah. So, um... And different people take different things away from... Right. There, there's an awful lot in it. Um, so, that's why we decided to do it again, and uh, hope you like it. Now I'll sit. I'll repeat that the book starts off with the poem Three Rings for the Elven Kings Under the Sky, Seven for the Dwarf Lords in Their Halls of Stone, Nine for Mortal Men Doomed to Die, One for the Dark Lord on His Dark Throne, In the Land of Mordor Where the Shadows Lie, One Ring to Rule Them All, One Ring to Find Them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them. In the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. So that's a bit uh, creepy and ominous, and um, sets the tone for a somewhat darker story than The Hobbit. Uh, this was originally going to be a little sequel to The Hobbit, um, and it grew into a gigantic thing. Far, far bigger than The Hobbit ever was in length, and I would say probably more cultural influence, too. Um, I already kind of hit the notes on the text already with Sam, and we're going to focus mostly on the prologue, but I will say Tolkien had his own opinions about spelling, so like he didn't like spelling Elvin with an F, it's got to be a V, it's very important that it be a V, I guess it's to distinguish his elves from like the silly Jingle Bell kind with Christmas and Santa Claus, um, no, these are serious elves, these are very elfly elves, and we spell it with a V, um, same thing with Dwarven, um, he spelled the flower nestur- um, nasturtiums as nasturtiens, which I don't know why he did it, but I've uh, actually started pronouncing it that way sometimes too, because Tolkien is that cool. Um, and, and Sarah worked in a greenhouse for years, so she- I'm like, yeah, here's some nasturtiums. Um sometimes grown ornamentally, sometimes eaten for its kind of radish-like taste. Um, back in the day, I had some lizards that loved them, and I have some lizards that would still like them if I had any to give, but... The greenhouse is gone, and so are the nasturtiums. It's not the good time of year to have them. And some stuff about how... It's not intentional allegory about politics or anything else. Uh, The reader takes what the reader takes from it, and applicability does not equal allegory. Um, Tolkien was fairly firm on this. That, yeah, it's not about... It's not about the war. It's not about 
Hitler and Germany as the threat or any of that. It's it's its own thing. Although, at the same time as he's said it's not allegory, he's also said it's a very Catholic work, so take it for what it... Take it for how you understand it, basically, on that. Well, I would say he... I would say he did take his own religious views in, and he also did probably take some of his experiences from World War I in, even if intentional allegory isn't meant. Right. So now... The first section of the prologue is on concerning hobbits. And um, you should take note that the book or the, the books of Lord of the Rings is actually called Red Book of Westmarch and it's not just the Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit, the book The Hobbit derives from the early earlier chapters of the Red Book of Westmarch. So oh, yes. I'm guessing like The Hobbit and the trilogy is what the Red Book of Westmarch would be. I will say it has never been published under these names, but the implication is supposed to be that the hobbits themselves wrote down their own diary and history of this and put it in their Red Book of Westmarch in their own world. Although you'd almost think it's almost surprising that... Um, the Tolkien estate never released it as, oh, this is what Red Book of Westmarch edition. Or, it's got all of them. AKA, whatever. Um, yes. But, well, also, uh, The Hobbit, Bilbo wrote it as There and Back Again. So, most people don't know it as that. And also, there has been more than one version of The Hobbit, which we've gone over before, but there was the original published version, and then Tolkien decided that Bilbo's actions didn't line up with what he was doing in Lord of the Rings, so he re-released The Hobbit with a few things changed, including taking out references to policemen in China, which didn't fit in with the world, and their conversation with Gollum is altered to um, match what makes sense with what happens later in Lord of the Rings, and the original version is like, oh, well, Bilbo was already being affected by the ring, so he told some uh, not-quite-true things to his friends about what happened, so this is what really happened. So do you have copies of both? Or? I do not have copies of both. It is extremely difficult and much more than I can afford expensive to get a hold of an, an original. original copy. And you would once again think the Tolkien estate would you know, release an original because Tolkien fans would go crazy to get it. Uh, well, if anybody out there has a copy and they'd love to gift it to Sarah, <laughs> she's more than uh, happy to receive it. <laughs> and if you want to message and talk about any uh, differences in the text, I'd also love to hear it also. Yep. Um, because none of them are things I've actually gotten to see with my own eyes. So anyway, about Hobbits themselves... Now, I should let you know, I identify as a hobbit in a lot of ways. 
Uh, uh, we're short. We like food. We love the c- country, even though we don't live any place like that now. We'd love oh, to live in a place like in, the Shire. I, I grew up in the country and in, in t- tiny towns, very tiny at times. Uh, and yes, I'm under five feet tall. Shoes are kind of annoying. Uh. <laughs> I I don't keep my feet furry, but. Uh, <laughs> and they're not quite as leathery as a hobbit would be. But uh, I do like hobbit dress. Um. Yeah, she's wearing something right now that. Yeah, I could see a lady hobbit wearing that dress. It's kind of. A simple cut with a floral print and um, an actually reasonably sized pocket that you could fit things, including maybe the one ring, into. No fake pockets that you can't even fit more than, like, a credit card. And I actually made several versions of this dress, um, and I tried to do Hobbit colors when I made them, and my next sewing project is... A skirt that I would call Hobbit E as well. Uh, so, yes, and uh, I'm definitely a Hobbit. <laughs> so, yeah, it's um, talks about they love peace and quiet and good tilled earth and a well ordered and well farmed countryside is their favorite place. Well, that's me. Um, they don't understand or like machines more complicated than a forge bellows, a water mill, or a hand loom, but they are skillful with tools. And even in the ancient days, they were, as a rule, shy of the big folk, meaning humans, um, because of the several feet height difference. They avoid us with dismay and are becoming hard to find. And quick of hearing and sharp-eyed... And they're good at disappearing swiftly and silently, which was very good for Bilbo several times. Um, when large folk whom they do not wish to meet come blundering by, and to um, to men, to humans, often just called men in with a capital M in this book, right. they're getting hard to find. And they have never studied magic of any kind. Yes, even Bilbo with the ring, uh, he doesn't studying magic. He was using magic someone else made. Now, this isn't about the book per se, but the Hobbit, the, the series. The, the TV series, The Rings of Power right now, it had their Hobbit leader using some kind of magic in a magic book. Right. And that doesn't go with what Tolkien actually wrote about them. So, but it's something that stuck in my mind. Yeah, it almost feels like they were sort of written with leprechauns a bit in mind, except for they are different from leprechauns in this major way, and they do are not magical, they don't do magic. I'm pretty sure if they did somehow encounter something like a leprechaun, they would think he was crazy. Um... But yeah, the yeah little folk that uh, disappear and live out in the countryside. And uh, they're they're, s- they're smaller than dwarves, less stout, and stocky. Their height is variable, ranging between two and four feet of our measure. They seldom reach three feet, but according to the Red Book, Vandobrus 
took. Bandobras, uh, I think. Bandobras took, okay. um, also called Bullroarer. Um, the son of Isenbras the third was four foot five, and he was the able second. to ride a. Oh, the sec. The second. Or it the says third? third. Third. Oh, gee, I made a mistake. Four foot five, and he was able to ride a real horse, and he was surpassed in all the Hobbit records only by two famous characters of old, and that matter will be dealt with in this book. And I think I know exactly who they were, but it would be spoiler of me to say it now. And speaking of dress again, uh, they were notably fond of yellow and green. And Oh, I love green. The first Hobbit dress I made was yellow, green, and brown. Yeah. So. And ha- they seldom wear shoes and their feet of tough, leathery soles with thick, curling hair. And the hair on both their feet and their heads was usually brown. And the only craft that was little practiced among them was shoemaking. But they were good at making a whole lot of other useful and comely things. They had long, skillful fingers. And bright-eyed and red-cheeked with mouths apt to laughter and to eating and drinking. And they they loved to laugh at um, simple jests and have six meals a day when they could get them. And they were hospitable and delighted in parties and presents. They gave freely and eagerly accepted. Yeah, because at a Hobbit birthday party, it's actually the host who's having the birthday who gives out the presents instead of the other way around. Which somewhat shifts the dynamic of what's uh, what it's like to throw a birthday party. Yeah, and you might have more guests. Yes, you might. Um, it says that uh, hobbits are relatives of ours, and they're more li- closely related to us than elves or even than dwarves. And they spoke the same language as men, but af- in their own way, and liked and disliked about the same things. Um, but exactly how we're related to them isn't gone into and it's considered lost um, information exactly what the origin of the hobbits was. And they'd lived a long time in Middle Earth without anyone else even knowing they were there. Probably because of that disappearing. So is that what they called the the old world? Middle Earth? Um, that's it, yes. Middle-earth is actually intended to be a fictional history for this world. It's not on another planet or... It's like this world, but with magical stuff and hobbits and trolls running around. And most hobbits didn't have a love for learning other than, um genealogical lore. You know, keeping everyone's family trees. And their own records began after the settlement of the Shire. And this is taking place in the third age of Middle-earth, so um, 
the first age being right after Middle-earth's creation, and the second age is after the War of Wrath, which is when the um, Rings of Power TV show is set. This is the third age where the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings fully take place, and the fourth age begins like right after this book, Lord of the Rings, is done. What comes after the Lord of the Rings book-wise? What's like... Um, not nothing. You're into the Age of Men and... So, there's nothing written about the Fourth Age? Um, I don't believe there is, except for just a little bit of, you know, wrapping up the stories of characters that are in this age. I imagine there's fan fiction. Oh, I'm sure it. there is. There's fan fiction of everything. There's so much fan fiction with, like, dwarves running a coffee shop or... That's like its own thing. So, yes, the hobbits had um, their own wandering days before they got to the Shire. And... They were found in the upper vales of Anduin, between Greenwood the Great and the Misty Mountains. So that would be... Okay, you know where... If you have read The Hobbit or listened to the podcast... Where Bilbo and the dwarves had already crossed the Misty Mountains... And they're running away from the goblins and wolves... And they meet Bjorn... And there's a river that they have to ford... Um, Yes... Somewhere... Maybe not at that exact region, but in the neighborhood of that. Yeah. Um, Greenwood the Great becoming Mirkwood. Before the crossing of the mountains, the, Hobbit be- the hobbits became divided into three somewhat different breeds. Um, it's so- interesting to say breeds. Yeah, because they're... They're more like people, and breeds, yeah, you associate with more like animals. But, right. Um, anyway, you've got the Harfoots, who were browner of skin, smaller and shorter, beardless, bootless, bootless, and their hands and feet were neat and nimble, and they preferred highlands and hillsides. And they were the most numerous. They were the most numerous. So, like, most hobbits are descended from Harfoots. I mean, I'm sure there was some intermarriage between the three branches, oh, I but... I imagine. I doubt if they were... Were like, no, you're Harfoot, you're different, or whatever, but... Right. Um, so, yes, the Harfoots... Um, and then the... St- how would you pronounce that? Stores? I think it's Stores. Um, S-T-O-O-R-S. Yeah. Um... Broader, yeah. heavier in build, and hands and feet larger, and they preferred flat lands and river sides. Um, so I guess they weren't as afraid of the water as some, but we'll get into that soon. And the fallow hides were fairer of skin and also of hair, taller and slimmer than the others, and they loved trees and woodlands. And I'll say... Um, this branch of hobbits were most associated with, uh, quote-unquote, like, dangerous or improper adventurers, and, um, part of Bilbo's family, uh, come from that side, which is accounted for some of his, uh, adventuring. Right. 
Now it says the northern branch, so they lived more northern. Yeah. And they were the least numerous. And they actually crossed the mountains north of Rivendell and came down the river Horwell. And because of being bolder and more adventurous, they were often found as leaders of clans of other types of hobbit. The stores, uh, they stayed longer by the banks of the river Anduin. They were less afraid of men. And they also... Oh, I'm sure there was something of them having more to do with dwarves also, but I don't... Maybe I was wrong about that because I don't see it. Now, they came west after the Harfords came west. And they... Um, dwelled between Tharbad and the borders of Dunland before they moved north again. Um, yeah, if you ever play the game Lord of the Rings Online and there's some uh, Hobbit settlement in Dunland with Hobbits in there, I don't think it's implied that they're actually still there in the books, but... Mm -hmm. Oh, and this also says the Harfoots were the ones who were most inclined to settle in one place and preserve the ancestral habit of living in tunnels and holes. So, yeah, all, hab all hobbits originally lived in holes in the ground. Which they called Smiles, S-M-I-A-L-S. And... Although by the time this story takes place, only like the poorest hobbits and the richest ones are still keeping the living in holes tradition. And the poorest hobbits are living in pretty spartan holes that aren't like Bilbo's nice fancy many rooms. Yeah, they, the very poorest may not even have a window. Or if they're lucky, they have a window. Um, and The regular middle class hobbits, they were living in little... Uh, low-to-the-ground cottages. But they, even when they were in cottages, they liked their rounded doors, they liked their rounded walls, uh, they didn't build anything towering. Everything was going to be long, you know, so instead of having a tunnel, they'd have a longer cottage. Um, and uh, these hobbits, they... They moved into the land that's between the Misty Mountains and the Mountains of Loon, which you may know better as the Arid Loon. And that's where they founded their Shire. So, yeah, it's a nice, like, farmable land with not much in the way of dangers and just how they like it. Uh, it says here in the early days that they learned the letters and man and writing after the manner of the Dunedain, who learned it from the elves. So these would be the Dunedain are the descendants of Numenorians. So that would have influenced their language in its own way. And the hobbits that are 
credited with founding the Shire are the Fallowhide brothers Marcho and Blanco, who had set out from Bree after they'd gotten permission from the High King of Fornost, and they crossed the Brown River Baranduin, which later became the Brandywine, more from, like, language drifting than anything to do with brandy or wine, despite these being hobbits. Uh, and Yeah, there's a brandy wine is, in our state. Yes, there's a brandy wine not that far from us, so uh, that kind of has <laughs> a more special meaning to me because of that. Yeah. We're talking from Pennsylvania here. And back when he lived in Massachusetts, there was a Buckland, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And that's another uh, hobbity region. Although that Buckland looked a lot more hobbity than the Brandywine here does. Yeah. So they they passed over the Bridge of Stonebows, which um, had been built, I guess, by men in the days of the power of the North Kingdom. And for their settling there, what was demanded of them was they had to keep the bridge in repair and other bridges and roads so they could speed the king's messengers, and they had to acknowledge the king's lordship. But I guess the ideas other than that, hobbits are pretty much left alone. So the Shire Reckoning begins... Um, their calendar is not quite the same as ours, which I'll get into later. Um, they were officially under the king of the North Kingdom, but they didn't have much to do with them. They were ruled by their own, um, chieftains in the Shire. Although in the last battle, um, on the North Downs with Fornost and the Witch Lord of Angmar, they did send some archers to fight, but there aren't any tales of men that record it. But, um, yeah, the North Kingdom didn't win that war. And by that point, the hobbits began ruling themselves. And I don't know what happened to the hobbits that went off to war. I kind of don't have a good feeling about that. They didn't have a lot of um, trouble for a while, and, um, they prospered until they were hit by the Dark Plague, which I presume is something like the plague in Europe, and after that, a long winter and a famine, and a lot of hobbits didn't make it, it's as many thousands, but this is... The Dark Plague and the Days of Darth and the Long Winter are all long before this story takes place. But, uh, it's bad to think of hobbits having plague and famine and... I mean, I, it's bad for anyone, but... Yeah, to me, hobbits are like everything's all hunky-dory all the time. And Except it, it wasn't. It's, it wasn't. No, it, they they faced a lot of the same problems... We have throughout, you know, human history. And after this was over, um, the land was well tilled and they had farms and corn, corn lands. 
I would have said cornfields, but vineyards, woods, and this stretches from the Far Downs, the Brandywine Bridge, Northern Moors, Marshes of the North, they called it the Shire, and a region was the of the authority of their thane, who I guess was their their leader. And it was a pleasant place, peace and plenty. Um, it says they forgot or ignored what little they had ever known of the Guardians, and that's got a capital G. Um, but I think we'll get into that later. No hobbits of any kind have been warlike, and they'd never fought among themselves. Um, even though there are times they had to fight because of yeah, how the world was. Um, there was a time when orcs invaded the Shire long in their history, the Battle of Greenfields, and that's when Banderbrust took, um, killed the leader of the goblins, Golfin Bull, mm -hmm. and invented the game of golf at the same time, according to The Hobbit. That's funny. Well, uh, golf. You know, his head rolled down a hole. And they still had some weapons around, but they mostly either had them as trophies or hung them up as you know, decoration in their above their hearth, or they put them in their Matham house, which I think was sort of a museum slash storage place. Yeah. Um, it says the hobbits were surprisingly tough with what they could handle. Because, oh, they look like they're little and friendly and used to eating well, but they actually survive hardship very well and will fight if they're cornered and are good uh, archers with the bow and, and throwing rocks. If any hobbit stooped for a stone, it was well to get quickly under cover, as all trespassing beasts knew very well. Um, yeah, there's some discussion of their building, which we've already gone into. Well, there's, there's more on the There buildings. is more on it, though. Yeah, um, like, uh, certain tradesmen, uh, preferred, uh, being in, like, farmhouses and barns. Uh, or, let's see, what am I? My goodness, I hate losing track of my myself here. Uh, yeah, it talks about there's an area called the Marish, which is closer to the Brandywine, and the hobbits in that area were kind of large as far as hobbits go and were more likely to wear dwarf boots in muddy weather. I know, dwarf boots, wearing shoes. And some of them even grew a little bit of a beard on their chin 
just a little bit, and no other hobbits other than ones of store descent grow any beard. Uh, what I was looking for regarding uh, above-ground homes is like Miller's, Smith's, um, Cartwright's, uh, tradesmen uh, tended to uh, build above-ground maybe it was easier than hauling whatever or they needed more air circulation it almost makes it sound like the fallow hides might be a little bit more related to elves and the stores might be a little bit related to dwarves what with the boot wearing and growing a little yeah. bit of beard but it never actually comes out and says that any of them have ancestry of either but it's sort of sounds that way? Well... Oh, yeah, the quote-unquote absurd rumor of some Tuki ancestor having a quote-unquote fairy wife, which to me might suggest elves or... Mm-hmm. But they said absurd, so maybe, maybe not. Well, it might have been considered absurd by... Oh, an elf how scandalous. Right, <laughs> it's right. I mean, something to make them a little taller and better archers and more into language and adventuring. Um, That's all pretty scandalous. Yeah. Um, talks more about their craft of building being derived from the Dunedain, which, uh, you don't see any Dunedain living underground, though. And there were three elf towers that are very old, they don't know when it was built, that are seen on the tower hills beyond the western marches, and those are off in the direction of the sea. And very few hobbits have seen this ocean or sailed on it, and even fewer have come back to talk about it. They're afraid of it, they don't even like rivers and small boats that yeah, much. Not, not many could swim. And they also, they talked less and less with elves and became afraid of them, too. And the sea became a word of fear among them and a token of death, and they turned their faces away from the hills in the west. Well, even then, you still got a mountain range between them and the sea. Which, by the way, is where the dwarves that came to Bilbo were living after the dragon routed them out of Erebor. Yeah. The Arid Luin would be a mostly dwarf area. And I don't think they had much in the way of dangers there. I don't think they had goblins and orcs. And mm-hmm. Yes, they do in the video game adaptation, but I don't think they're meant to in the book. Um, there's stuff about how the houses and holes of Shire Hobbits were often large and inhabited by large families, and Bilbo and Frodo being bachelors was exceptional. I think more of, um, uh, Samwise Gamgee's and Rosie Cotton, and... Oh, yeah, they had a lot of kids, and yeah. Rosie had a lot of siblings, too, and... Yeah, they they had a real 
community just in their family. <laughs> and great smiles for the chooks and brandy hall for the brandy bucks uh, are apparently huge holes with a lot of tunnels with multiple families all living in there like a rabbit warren. Yeah. And they had have very long genealogical trees which are partly shown here in the appendices of this book. Or should I say, of, of the last Lord of the Rings book, because I'm looking at a copy that's all three books in one, and you're looking at a copy that's, um... The first book. Yes. It's normally divided into three. I find the one book more convenient, but... So... Anyway, on to concerning pipeweed. Or was there anything else you wanted to say about the hobbits? Um, no, no, I think we're good on that. They have the quote-unquote astonishing habit of imbibing or inhaling from pipes of clay or wood the smoke of the burning leaves of a herb, which they called pipeweed or leaf, a variety probably of Nicotiana. We actually weren't sure on the pronunciation of that, all my life I had pronounced it Nicotinia, but I had started working at a greenhouse and we sold an ornamental variety of it, which I'd heard pronounced as Nicotiana, and I wasn't sure what was right, and we actually looked it up just today, and Nicotiana is correct. What's really interesting, okay, it... Hobbits call this custom of smoking pipeweed um, an art. And, oh, I, I'm so bad at pronouncing names. Mariadic? Mariadoc? Mariadoc? Brandybuck? Later, Master of Buckland? Better known as Mary. And writer of Herb Lore of the Shire, which isn't something that actually is a book we can pick no, up. No, it's not. It's just something they have in their own world. I'd read it, though. I definitely would. Um, and apparently, yeah, the South Farthing produced very good pipeweed. And uh, the hobbits from the Shire had smoked various herbs, some fouler, some sweeter. Uh, I don't know what these herbs were, but I will say that there are a lot of different plants other than just tobacco and weed that people have smoked for various reasons um some were considered i'm talking real life some were considered medicinal um i will plenty, say plenty of little boys no kind of silk no kind of smoke is probably going to be all that good for your lungs but right and i've tried smoking a malane plant before which um, you better known as lamb's ear um it smells kind of like a light, like leaves burning in a campfire kind of smell. And I pretty much, I wanted to try smoking something in a pipe without smoking actual tobacco or weed. And, um, that's a plant that's pretty easy to get. I'm certainly not as a podcaster saying, oh yeah, go try smoking stuff. 
We're not uh, recommending anybody smoke anything. That is entirely up to you and on you. So, yeah, it sounds like the hobbits tried smoking various plants, but it was Tobald Hornblower of Longbottom, who... He's from the South Farthing, and he grew the true pipe weed in his garden in the days of Isengrim II. It's known as Longbottom Leaf, Old Toby, and Southern Star. And this was where the best pipe weed was supposed to have come from, and they don't know where Old Toby first got it from. Um, he knew a lot of herbs, but he wasn't a traveler, but he did go off into Bree, which is just outside of the Shire, and Bree is a major crossroads for people going in different directions. So, it could have come from anywhere. And from Bree, the art of smoking the genuine weed spread to recent, in recent centuries among dwarves and such other folk. Rangers, wizards, wanderers. wanderers. Now, Bree claims they did everything before the people of the Shire. And they call the people of the Shire the colonists. And... There is some reason, apparently, to believe that Pipeweed may not even be native to Middle Earth. I mean, that the part of Middle Earth that yeah. you see that it may have been brought over the sea by men from Numenor, and it grows a lot in Gondor, where it is richer and larger than in the north, but it's never found wild, and it flourishes only in warm, sheltered places like Longbottom, and the men of Gondor call it Sweet Galenass and esteem it only for the fragrance of its flowers. Now, I never found Nicotiana flowers to have particular fragrance, but I never actually, like, stuck my nose in one either. I've spent so much annoying time deadheading the wet flowers off after it rains so they'll still look in any condition to sell to customers who want it ornamentally. I'm sure I've seen them because I've been over to that greenhouse so many times when it was there. Oh, I started hating dealing with those. The I, flowers I, were just get so nasty if if the weather was off in some way and I'd have to pick all of the bad ones off. They were supposed to attract hummingbirds. They, I did not see the hummingbirds go to those so much. I'm not sure I saw them go to it at all. Uh, and they preferred the salvia sage. <coughs> Sorry. Well, the flowers are pretty. I'm just looking it up to familiarize myself with it. I'm not sure whether it's the exact same species as the tobacco that people smoke. I think it is. I, I don't know, because what do I remember about seeing tobacco leaves? Because I've driven past barns where they're drying... And they were gigantic. Large, large leaves. And the Nicotiana plants at the greenhouse, like the leaves looked like the same shape, but they were small. Really small. Yeah. And they, these compared. barns would have walls that would open up to, to get air and ventilation, I guess, for drying the leaves. But these enormous leaves would be drying on poles 
in these barns. Uh, now, it's suggesting that the pipeweed was brought up the greenway from Gondor to Breland. Um, long centuries between the coming of Elendil and this time. But even the Dunedain of the Gondor allow the hobbits the credit of being the first to actually smoke it out of a pipe. Even the wizards didn't come up with that. And it says, The one wizard that I knew took up the art long ago and became as skillful in it as in all other things that he put his mind to. I think uh, we can all guess who that is. Yeah. Yeah, that's Gandalf. Now, on to uh, the ordering of the Shire. It was divided into four quarters, which were called farthings, north, south, east, and west. So just think of those as like the districts of the Shire divided into four. And these were, again, divided into a number of folk lands, which bore the names of some of the old leading families. So there was Tukland, for instance. But eventually the families didn't all stay in the places their names were associated with, except for the Turks. Yeah, the Bagginses and the, the Boffins, they, they didn't live in an area called after them, but... Um, I recommend having a good look at a map of the Shire, either in the book or easily found online. To me, it sounds kind of nice, but the Shire at this time had hardly any government. Sounds good. And yeah, um, the, for the most part, they managed their own affairs, growing food and eating it. That occupied most of their time. Um, and in other matters, they were, as a rule, generous and not greedy, but contented and moderate. Um, so that their estates and small trades and farms and so on tended to remain unchanged for generations. When you say not greedy, I think of, what is it, Sackville Baggins? Yeah, the Sackville Baggins is... So there are exceptions. Uh, Ted Sandyman's uh, ambitions regarding the mill... Um, they had a tradition about the king at Fornost, which they called Norbury, which was not in the Shire. This was um, pretty far to the northeast of it. Um, there hadn't been any king for thousands of years, and even the ruins were covered with grass. But when the hobbits were talking about wild folk or wicked things such as trolls, they would say they had not heard of the king, and they attributed their laws... Um, to the king, even though there wasn't any. Right. So I guess you could say the king of old. The Took family had long been preeminent, and the office of Thane had passed to them. From the old bucks. And the chief Took still kept the title. 
and he was the master of the Shire Moot and captain of the Shire Muster and the Hobbitry in Arms, which were seldom used because they didn't have war very often. So it became just like a ceremonial thing more than... It says a nominal dignity. The Chooks stayed numerous and very rich. And they still tended to occasionally have in their generation um, characters of peculiar habits and even adventurous temperament. Oh. Um, which were tolerated if you were rich more than actually approved of. And they still called the head of their family the Took. And they'd add to his name a number because they kept reusing names in their family. They had like Isengrim the second. And the only real official the Shire had at this point was the mayor, who lived at Mitchell De- Delving, who was elected every seven years at the Free Fair on the White Downs at the Lith, which would be midsummer. All their months have different names. As mayor, almost his only duty was to preside at banquets given on the Shire holidays, which occurred at frequent intervals. Mm, not a bad gig. No. And they'd have a postmaster and a first sheriff. Um, the post did, you know, the obvious thing the post does. Now, about the sheriffs, uh, it was pro- it's pronounced, it's spelled S-H-I-R-R-I-F-F. But you think of sheriff when you yeah, say Yeah, so they're police, they didn't really have actual crime to really think about. They're more likely to just be patrolling around the border and if and returning stray animals where they belong and that kind of stuff. Um, I, I can think of little hobbits going out into a farm field and stealing a, you know, a, a potato or a mushroom or whatever... Now you return that potato, young master. I'll have words with your dad. Uh, we actually have a potato thief in our family here. Yeah, the dog. The dog is a potato thief. Yes, yeah, she is. And the sheriffs would traditionally have a feather in their cap. And if they have two feathers, they're a bit higher ranking sheriff. Now that came up in the movie. Yes, the um, animated Return of the King, which I've never podcasted about, and I will eventually. Um, Sam Gamgee has the feather hat on, and I'm like, oh, did they make him a hobbit cop in this? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Which he was not in the book. It says that a rather larger... Yeah, there were 12 of these sheriffs, three in each farthing for inside work and a rather larger body varying at need to beat the bounds and see that outsiders of any kind, great or small, did not make themselves a nuisance. Now, at at this point, the bounders, as these were called, were starting to actually see more troublesome outsiders than usual. 
Complaints of strange persons and creatures prowling about the border or over them. Which, I mean, it's a bit of foreshadowing that things are starting to stir up in the world. Yeah. Um, this is 60 years since Bilbo has returned to the Shire after his uh, adventure. And he's brought back... He brought back money... They weren't sure how much of it he still had. He'd reached a hundred years old. He was still considered rich. So, uh, either it was still old money he had, or not even. He brought back a lot more than I imagined he did. Well, a chest of. Gold and a chest of silver, and as much as one strong pony could carry. I'm not exactly sure how much right. that would be. Uh, how overladen was the pony? Uh, yeah. And what the value of this gold or silver was? No, I don't think hobbits had inflation yet. Well, but I imagine they had value enough that. You know, you might trade it for something, use it for making things. And it says, how much or how little he revealed to no one, not even to Frodo, his favorite nephew, which is in quotes. And he still kept secret the ring that he had found. Now, about nephew being in quotes. I mean... I've seen reference to him being called called cousins, too. Yeah, about that. You see, Frodo wasn't actually his nephew. Frodo was, um... We did look the particulars of this up. And apparently he's like a second cousin to Bilbo. He is related, but no, Bilbo is not actually his uncle. Right. But age-wise, that might have been what they were going for. Because Frodo was younger. I mean, he had taken Frodo in to be his heir. Yeah. And Frodo didn't at that point have living parents, which we will also get into why about that later. Yeah. But no, he was not actually the nephew. I mean, we've seen the memes about, oh yeah, my uncle left me a problematic piece of jewelry. Um, Do... Do I really have to return it? It has become precious to me. Memes, you know. Yeah. So, on to section four of the Finding of the Ring. Now this, if you've read The Hobbit or listened to our podcast about The Hobbit, you already know this. But it uh, goes on about how Bilbo went off adventuring with Gandalf and the Thirteen Dwarves and Thor and Oakenshield um, on a morning of April in 1341 Shire Reckoning to get back the great treasure of the dwarves from Smog the Dragon. The quest was successful and the dragon that guarded the horde was destroyed. And they won the battle of the five armies, but Thorn was still killed in this battle, and many deeds of renown were done. And this matter would have scarcely concerned later history, except for an accident, in quotes, along the way. The party was assailed by orcs in the high pass of the Misty Mountains, 
and Bilbo got lost for a time in the orc mines, and he was feeling around on the floor of the tunnel in the dark and found a ring and put it in his pocket. It seemed then like mere luck that all this is in one paragraph. Yeah. Uh, he goes down further into the tunnel trying to find his way out and at the bottom of the tunnel is a cold lake in the dark and an island of rock with a creature called Gollum. A loathsome little creature who paddled a small boat with his large flat feet. Peering with pale, luminous eyes and catching blind fish with his long fingers and eating them raw. And he would eat any living thing, even orc, if he could catch it and kill it without a struggle. And he kept a secret ring of gold that would turn its wearer invisible. And he loved this ring. He called it his precious. He talked to it. Even when it wasn't with him, he talked to it, and he kept it hidden in a hole on this island, except when he was hunting or spying on the orcs. And he would have attacked Bilbo right away, except he didn't have the ring while he on him at that moment, and Bilbo had a long elvish knife, so he was afraid of the knife. And so he challenged Bilbo to a riddle game, saying if he asked the riddle and Bilbo couldn't guess, that he could kill him and eat him. But if Bilbo won... He would do what Bilbo wants, which is show him the way out. And Bilbo agreed to this because he was desperate, and so they asked their riddle game. And in the end, he can't think of a riddle to ask Gollum, and he says, What have I got in my pocket? Which Gollum doesn't guess, even with three guesses. Now, the authorities, in cap- capitalize the authorities, whoever they are, differ on whether the last question really counts as a riddle instead of just a question according to the strict rules of the game, also capitalized. But all agree that after accepting it and trying to guess the answer, Gollum was bound by his promise. And Bilbo tried to get him to keep his word and show him the way out, but Gollum was treacherous and went back to his island to look for his ring so he could uh, go after Bilbo while invisible. The ring was not there, and so Gollum is freaking out. What has it got in its pocket, says? Oh, I didn't do it in the voice, but... What has it got in its pocket, says? <laughs> um, and the, way you do good. <laughs> the light in his eyes was like a green flame as he sped back to murder the hobbit and recover his precious. And just while Bilbo is trying to run away, he puts his hand in his pocket, which is weird to do while you're running, and the ring slipped quietly onto his finger. It says the ring slipped on. It doesn't say he slipped his finger into the ring. And Gollum passed without seeing him and went to guard the way out so the thief couldn't escape. And Bilbo just followed him back and there he was blocking the door And Bilbo was tempted to kill him with a sword, but he had pity on Gollum, and he kept the ring, but jumped over Gollum in the dark, and he's crying after Bilbo, Thief! Thief! 
Baggins! We hates it forever! <laughs> and Bilbo did not tell the true version of the story to his companions. Um, remember how I said in the first edition of The Hobbit there were some things that were changed? Yeah. Well... Gollum had given the ring willingly in the first version of the story and of course there's no way this Gollum is giving that ring willingly right. so no, the, it was obsessed with the ring so Bilbo was already starting to feel guilty and ha be affected by the ring himself and he told the dwarves that it was won fairly when actually he'd taken it in a way that could be seen as semi-cheating if he weren't in such a desperate place. Right. And it it says uh, this is the account that Billboard put down in his memoirs and he seems to have never altered it himself not even after the Council of Elrond and it still appeared in the original Red Book as it did in several of the copies and abstracts. And that many copies of the true account, which was probably from notes by Frodo or Samwise, tell the real truth. But they seemed unwilling to delete anything actually written by the old hobbit himself. So this is Tolkien's way of uh, fixing that he had already published it this way and then changed it. He wrote an in-universe reason for it being changed. But Gandalf apparently didn't believe Bilbo at any point about this. And he was curious about the ring. And he eventually got the real truth out of Bilbo after a lot of questioning. And this strains their friendship between Bilbo and the wizard. And Gandalf had found it disturbing that Bilbo should lie at all because this isn't like him. But it also says that the idea of a present was not mere hobbit-like invention all the same. It was suggested to Bilbo, as he confessed, by Gollum's talk that he overheard, for Gollum did in fact call the ring his birthday present many times. That also Gandalf thought strange and suspicious, but he did not discover the truth in this point for many more years, as will be seen in this book. Um, more about uh, Bilbo had further adventures, and he used the ring many times, mostly to help his friends, and he kept it secret as long as he could. And no one else in the Shire except for Gandalf and Frodo knew it existed. Now, the origins of, um, Gollum. Yes, um, this, this is gonna get, come up in more detail in a later chapter. Mm -hmm. A Shadow of the, the Shadow of the Past, Chapter 2. But yes, Gollum is actually... He's related to hobbits himself, apparently, from the store branch. Oh, and that whole thing about stores being like, like a bigger hobbit, and and you look at Gollum, and he's kind of like a weedy little frogman dude, so he's about as unstore-like as he can be, yeah. so uh, the ring twisted him that much. Um, he's river folk, which is related to the stores. Which would explain why he liked to be on that little island out in the lake. Um, and his talk about presents, I mean, that's 
a bit of a hobbit thing that he retained yeah. a vestige of. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's obviously more to that, which I will give you when we get to that chapter. Um, yeah, he hung up his sword sting over his fireplace, and he had a coat of um, mithril mail, which was a gift from Thorin, the dwarf from the Dragon Horde, and he lent it to a museum. The Mitchell Delving Matham House. And he kept in a drawer at Bag End his old cloak and hood that he'd worn, which had originally belonged to Dwalin, and the ring on a fine chain he kept in his pocket. He went back to Bag End. Um, June the 22nd of his 52nd year, Shara Reckoning 1342, and nothing very notable occurred in the Shire until Mr. Baggins began the preparations for the celebration of his 111th birthday in Shire Reckoning 1401, which is where this history begins. Yeah, I remember he did sometimes uh, use the ring with unpleasant collars. I'm sure the Sackville Baggins got yeah. that treatment. Uh, right. Which probably means, what, they were peeking in windows or something? Or? Like, up oh, here come the Sackville Baggins as ring goes on. Yeah. And I can't blame him much. Uh, note on the Shire Records. Um. Yeah. They had several libraries in the greater families that contain historical books and records. Um, because the end of this book, The Third Age, um, awakened more interest in history in The Hobbits, and the largest of the collections were probably at Undertowers, at Great Smiles, and at Brandy Hall. And this w- account was mostly in the Red Book of Westmarch, which we've already talked about. The most important source for the history of the War of the Ring was so called because it was long preserved at Undertowers, the home of the Fair Barons, Wardens of the Westmarch. And it started out as Bilbo's private diary. And yeah, Frodo put it together and back from Rivendell and a whole bunch of notes filled up pages with his own accounts. And next, and preserved with it, probably in a single red case, were the three large volumes bound in red leather that Bilbo gave to him as a parting gift. Now, I'm sure it being in three volumes is a nod to how Lord of the Rings is published in three exactly. books. Originally. Uh, actually, Tolkien wanted it to be like six books. And if you actually look in the books, it says book one, book two, book three, book four, you know. 
but in actual publishment, it is three books, and as I've said, some later editions, you get it all in one, and that's how I prefer it. Now, it mentions bound in red leather. I've wondered why. Does that mean that some early copies were bound in red leather, or...? I, I don't know, but I also think... Okay, I don't that seems very specific. Of, I don't think of cows so much. Oh, they've got cows. I just don't think of it. And they've got... As far as I can tell, Middle Earth has the same kinds of livestock that Europe would have had. Yeah, okay. And they probably also had sheep and... Yeah, I can, I, I think of sheep more probably because, you know, they'd use the wool and all that. And... Uh, it says to the four volumes are added in Westmarch, a fifth containing commentaries, genealogies, and various other matter concerning the Hobbit members of the Fellowship. I think this is in reference to the long rambling appendices at the end of Return of the King, mm -hmm. which I'm actually not sure how I am going to eventually address it as a podcaster because there's so much going on there and I want to do something with it, but it's it's going to be difficult. The original Red Book had not been preserved, but many copies were made, especially the first volume for the use of the descendants of the children of Master Samwise. I guess call that a spoiler if you want. Samwise definitely survives and has a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. And the most important copy has a different history and was kept at great smiles, but it was written in Gondor at the request of the great-grandson of Peregrine and completed in Shire Reckoning 1592 or 4th Age 172. And its southern scribe appended this note, Findigil, King's writer, finished this work in 4172 it is an exact copy in all details of the Thane's book in Minas Tirith. That book was a copy made at the request of King Elisar of the Red Book of the Perianath and was brought to him by the Thane Peregrine when he retired to Gondor in 4th Age 64. Now these books, I imagine, were all handwritten out when the copy was made. And they don't seem to correspond to anything that Tolkien published either. Right. Um, yes, a descendant of Peregrine. Uh, lived in Gondor. See, I don't want to throw too many spoil spoilers out about what happens with each hobbit in the end. Right. Although I can't exactly be blamed for what Tolkien decided to put in the prologue. Yeah. So this Thane's book was the first copy made of the Red Book and it contained things that was later omitted or lost. 
it got annotations and many corrections in Minas Tirith and quotations in Elvish languages and an abbreviated version of the parts of the tale of Aragorn and Arwen which lie outside the account of the war. Yeah, a lot of the story of Arwen is not in the main Lord of the Rings at all. They put it in the appendices. Mm-hmm. Which was somewhat changed for the film adaptation because, you know, you want to have a romance going in the film and not be like, oh yeah, they got married. Afterthought. Uh, Think of all the research that the writers had to do to write, to make I know there was changes, but still to to make things flow as they do in the movies. Yeah. Meriadoc and Peregrine became the heads of their great families. Yeah, Tolkien, more spoilers. Meriadoc and Peregrine both make it too. Uh, well, this isn't exactly a George R. R. Martin book where you know all the where a bunch of main characters are gonna not make it to the end libraries at Buckleberry and Tookborough contain much that did not appear in the Red Book not sure what that's a reference to and Brandy Hall had many works dealing with Eriador and the history of Rohan, and these were mostly written by Mary, or Meriadoc himself. But he was chiefly remembered for his herb lore, the Shire, and his reckoning of years, where he discussed the relation of the calendars of the Shire and Breed to those of Rivendell, Gondor, and Rohan. And he wrote a short treatise on old words and names in the Shire, showing special interest in discovering the kinships with the language of the Rohirrim of such Shire words as Matham and old elements in place names. Yes. Um, spoiler time again. Rohan and Gondor both have some kind of prior knowledge of hobbits, and there weren't words for them. Although it's so far back that they think hobbits are like some kind of fairy tale for the kids. Mm. But they kept some knowledge of the hobbits that was accurate. Uh, more about books that were kept at Great Smiles that were of less interest to Shire folk but more important for the larger history. None of them were written by Peregrine. But he and his successors collected many manuscripts written by scribes of Gondor and copies and summaries of histories or legends relating to Elendil and his heirs. And only here in the Shire were to be found extensive materials for the history of Numenor and the arising of Sauron. And it was probably at great smiles that the tale of years was put together with the assistance of material collected by Meriadoc. Now, this actually has a little note saying that this stuff is in reduced form in Appendix B for as far as the end of the Third Age. So, as you can see here, Tolkien 
comes up with a lot of in-universe ways that his own stuff that different copies of The Hobbit existing and different stuff that's put in in the appendices because it won't flow with the main story but he still wants it in there. He comes up with different in that world reasons why these accounts would exist. Right. Because Tolkien was very thorough, very nitpicky. That's why his stuff's so good. Yeah. Um, I mean, it I'm sure it was uh, crazy to deal with these notes when they were being done, but in the end, you got a very detailed, very immersive um, story, so. Um, this is all right before the beginning of The Fellowship of the Ring being the first part of The Lord of the Rings. And I don't know if your copy has it or not. Map? Yes, right before... Chapter one and long expected party. There's no maps. None. No illustrations. I hope they at least put the maps in the third book. Yes, different editions I've found. Oh, I'm sorry. There are maps, assorted maps at the beginning of my book. I Before. think, yes, all editions I believe have the maps, or at least they ought to. But they're not all consistent about where in the books the maps are put. So, um, her copy has a whole bunch of maps like, before the book begins, showing like the whole of Middle Earth, and um, another that's like a yeah. This has let's see here. A scaled-down map with the whole of Middle-earth. And a very simple map of the Shire. I don't think I've seen that map of the Shire before. Hmm. Very, very simplified map of the Shire with... Hobbiton labeled and the River Brandywine, Mitchell Delving, Far Downs, Tower Hills, West March, the River Loon, Lake... Even Dem Buckland, Old Forest Barrowdowns, Fornost. But it's extremely scaled down and makes all that stuff look much closer to each other than it was. Scaled down map of Middle Earth, all of Middle Earth, of the part you would get to see in this age anyway. A more closed-up map of Gondor and the mountainous edge of Mordor. Where it looks like part of Rohan in it, too. My copy doesn't have much in the way of maps until having a whole bunch at the end more like where the appendices would be but it does have right before the first chapter a map of the Shire and how it's divided into the different farthings shows the main roads where the forests are 
it's actually not the entire Shire, it's only the eastern end of it. It, it doesn't show where Mitchell delving is, it has a little arrow to Mitchell delving in the White Downs, to Little Delving. Very uh, in detailed the forest, and yeah, I believe Tolkien actually drew all this himself. Yeah. Shows where the trees are, bywater pool. Where the quarry is, um, and up toward even dim. Yeah, two dwelling. It's got a bunch of little towns that don't even really come into the story, except for oh yeah, they exist. Even shows where the ferry is in Buckleberry and the old forest and the Withywindle River. East Road to Bree. Yeah, if you have a copy, check out any maps that are in there, or if you don't, look them up online. Some of them are by Tolkien himself, some of them are drawn by fans if, of what you'll find on the internet anyway. Some of them are from the game Lord of the Rings Online, in which case the map will likely still be semi-accurate, but it may have some additions put in for the game. Yeah. So, compare it against a real one. So, yeah, that's the end of the prologue. As you can see, very long and involved. I'm looking forward to doing the whole series, but it's going to take some time to get through. It's, it's a lot of reading and a lot to discuss. But there'll be other podcasts of other things yeah. throughout all this. So, you know, stay tuned and you will eventually, you know, get through this. And uh, thank you for listening to Castings the Fire podcast. Stay tuned for more Lord of the Rings, more Rings of Power, more Game of Thrones, all that. And have a great afternoon. Bye-bye.